Welcome today to Hope for the Heart. For those of you who might be joining for the very first time, we are looking at the book of Revelation, uh, taking a verse-by-verse study through this tremendous book. And we are in chapter 4 today, chapter 4, uh, and I'm going to read to you and give you a context of what we'll be talking about today. It's found in Revelation chapter 4, verses 8 through 11. That will actually conclude chapter 4, and then we'll begin to get into chapter 5. And so to give us a context, I want to begin reading today in these verses so that you can uh, follow along if you'd like, or just listen. It's found in Revelation chapter 4, beginning in verse 8. The Word of God reads, And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy art thou, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you did create all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. This is one of those kinds of passages uh, that sometimes we might feel like we need to read it a couple of times just to get the impact of what it is saying. Uh, It is a tremendous passage, but I want you to, to know and to understand, we're talking about worship in heaven. We're talking about worship before the very throne of God. We're talking about something that is happening uh, in the future. Uh, This kind of worship is going on all the time, which we're going to see. But this that is specifically going on here is what John is writing about. He has been taken up into heaven, and he is being told to write the things that he is that he has seen and write the things which are, and then he is to write the things which shall take place after. And so what that means is John was to write uh, and to describe the vision he saw in chapter 1 of Revelation, and then in chapters 2 and 3 he was told to write the things which are, and that means the church age. Uh, that's how we interpreted that, to be the church age and to be to look at these seven churches of Asia Minor as they are real churches, real places, real people. Uh, But they also represent periods of time through the church age, and it goes from the time John wrote this all the way through to today, all the way up until just before the rapture. And so John is told to write that, but then he's told the third part of that, which is found in chapter 1, verse 19, that where he's told to write this. He's told to write the things which shall take place after the church age. And so that's what we're seeing. John's been called up into heaven, and now he is standing before the throne, and he's watching this. He's viewing this, uh, or as in his spirit, he is experiencing this. And it is uh, actually a very amazing thing to, to listen to. But as I, as I listen to this, and as I watch this and read this, uh, and, and see what the sovereignty of God is and understanding uh, revelation. I, I, I just want to draw your attention to a passage of Scripture. Uh, if you want to write this down, you can. Uh, I don't suggest you try to turn to it right now because many of you will be listening without copies of God's Word in front of you. But it's found in Isaiah chapter 46. 
uh, verses 9 and 10. And it says this, Remember the former things long past. And here's what he says, For I am God, there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me. Verse 10 of Isaiah 46, Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. So I am reminded of that particular verse as I go all the way through the the book of Revelation. And from time to time, I'm going to remind you of that verse because it is such a powerful verse. Here God is 2,000 years ago giving to John what's going to take place, which is what is now still future, after the church age. The things that were going to take place in heaven and on earth. And so John is able to experience this and to write this, and we're able to read and we're able to study and we're able to see it. Why? Is that, why did God do this? Because he simply had his good pleasure to do it. And he is able to do that. He's able to declare what's going to happen at the end of time at the very beginning of his creation. And so that's who he is describing to us. And so as we look at this in chapter uh, four of Revelation, we come to uh, a really great section. I've been looking at these four living creatures. You remember these four living creatures according to what we saw last week in verses 6 and 7. The first creature was like a lion, the second creature like a calf, third creature had the face of like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And we said that these were a very unusual uh, uh, uh uh, living ones or living beings as we described them last week. But Ezekiel, we saw in chapter 1, describes them as cherubim, angels frequently mentioned in the Old Testament. These are four angels, but they seem to be distinguished and laid out separate than the rest of the angels. And so these four cherubim or living beings or living creatures, as it calls them here, are uh, very involved in everything that is going on at this point. You say, well, why are they like this? Why are they described like this? You know, we, there's so much of this we don't know. But they're described in, 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 in Ezekiel like a lion, uh, a calf, a, a man, and a flying eagle. Uh, and, and so they, they appear to be uh, uh, hard for us to imagine uh, I think some of us, I've, I've had people tell me, you know, they, these must be scary monsters, and I don't think that at all. I think that, that, that that's just our, the things we've seen on television getting in the way. But the point of this may well be that Israel is being represented here uh, in the way that uh, Israel was in the Old Testament when these four seem to be that characteristic of the four types or four groups or camps of the uh, nation of Israel. But in this scene, the four living creatures or the angelic beings represent angels. And they are here about to assist God in judgment. That's what we're seeing here. In all this commotion and all this uh, preparation for judgment, this is heaven getting ready for judgment to be poured out upon this earth. And so we see very clearly that the judgment is starting at the very throne of God. We shouldn't be surprised then that these angelic beings, these living creatures, are moving in and around the throne as lightning flashes and peals of thunder are crackling as this fire begins to appear. 
uh, with the very center of the throne. We see the motion and the activity of these angels ready to move out in their judgments. And we find examples of this where it's talked about in the scriptures. Uh, in Matthew 13, verse 40, it talks about the angels will be, will be used to cast uh, the and separate the the, the the righteous from the unrighteous at the end of time. And then we see in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, the Lord coming, and when He appears, it says He will appear in the sky, not only by Himself, but He will appear in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And listen to this, He will send forth His angels and will gather together His elect from the four winds. His angels are very involved. And so what we see here around the very throne of God where John is right there watching this and viewing this, are these four living beings, these cherubim, who are angels that are very involved. You have the same kind of thing that you're seeing in Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. So as you read through this, uh, you, you can find examples of this in the, in the following uh, chapters ahead of us of how they are prepared to take part in the judgment of God. Now remember, this judgment is not judgment, it's happening in heaven. It's starting in heaven, it's unfolding in heaven, but it's judgment that will be poured out upon the earth in the tribulation period. I know you've heard so much about the tribulation period on earth that is probably very near to where we are now as far as timeline. But this tremendous time, it's a time known as the time of Jacob's trouble, it's called the tribulation or great distress, or it's called the great tribulation, these angels are prepared to, I guess, would be to help launch this. Like chapter 6, verse 1, The Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a loud voice of thunder, Come, and I looked, and behold, a white horse. So he sets it off. Then you find it all the way through here, like chapter 15, verse 1, Another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels had seven plagues, and here are the seven angels again dispensing plagues upon the earth. Another one of the four living beings uh, in chapter 15, verse 7, gave to those seven angels seven golden bowls of wrath. So there almost seems to be uh, a, a chain of command where this, these, these judgments are passed down from the throne, going through the four living creatures on to the regular angels, I guess for lack of a better phrase, onto the earth, to the living beings upon the earth. What we see starting in heaven is going to be poured out upon the earth. So it appears as though these four living beings, these cherubim, these holy angels, are definitely involved in judgment. So we can look at, at them and we can see that they are knowledgeable. They have eyes everywhere, it says in verse... Well, look at how it says in verse uh, 8. In each of the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And... We we have to be able to say with that that they're very knowledgeable. They can see, they perceive, they recognize, they scrutinize, they evaluate. Nothing escapes their vision. Uh, they see from the front, from the back. That's just what the uh, what is meant to convey to us. Nothing escapes their vision. They're aware of it. They're knowledgeable. But also we see the responsibility. Perhaps it's toward Israel. Perhaps towards uh, the the creation. Uh, in, in the way that their appearance is, but their role here is judgment. And before that happens, however, they're engaged in worship. So we, it's almost like we get the picture here that they are fully engaged in worship all the time and have always been. 
And it would say that judgment here in this particular section, getting ready for this small period of time on earth known as seven years of judgment or the tribulation period, that this role for them is a very temporary role. It comes and it goes in a rapid-fire succession in that brief time of the tribulation period which will be on earth, the day of the Lord, the unfolding of the final judgment. For all eternity, they have been occupied with one one thing, and that is judge, uh, uh, worship, that enterprise known as worship in heaven. It tells us at the end of verse 8, day and night they do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. So when the four living creatures give glory and honor, something else happens. They're engaged in worship. They're engaged in praising and glorifying and honor God. But I want you to notice, just before I get too far ahead of myself, in verse 8, they each have six wings. It tells us also in Isaiah chapter 6, two, uh, uh, they, they breaks them down in, into two, two, twos, and it tells us what they what these uh, wings are for. With two, these angels, because they uh, saw them, two, they two cover their face because they were created beings. They cannot look on the fullness of God's creation. Two covered their feet from the ground which they stand because uh, it is holy ground. And two, uh, to hover over this Ark of the Covenant or the, the worship or the throne. So worship is always their priority. They must cover their face, lest they be consumed by seeing the fullness of God's glory. They must cover their feet, lest they be consumed, because they stand on fiery, holy ground, as it were. And so they are engaged in worship day and night, nonstop. That's the picture here. And as we break this apart and begin to look at this, remember, it is worship that is their full priority. Now, we look at uh, what this is actually saying to us, and so as we look at verse 8, we see that day and night they do not cease to say. But look at what it says. In verse 8, it's referred to as they say this. And these are words that they say. It doesn't say they praise, or it doesn't say they worship. It doesn't say any of those things except they say. And look at what it says. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. Well, holy, holy, holy moves into this area of praise and so we can see that if we were to take this full picture here, we see what happens in verse 4. Uh, I mean, verse, uh, chapter 4 also extends into chapter 5. And you see almost a crescendo of praise. And it, we, we count these up going from chapter 4 through chapter 5. It's almost like we have five hymns of praise here. The most interesting of this is that it can be divided into two categories. The first, here in this chapter is uh, referring to creation, and second is the redemption of man. And so chapter 4 focuses on God as the God of creation, anticipating that he is going to redeem creation. Chapter 5 focuses on God as the God of redemption, the God of salvation, who is going to redeem man. And then there's another interesting facet here, and that is that it, it is a crescendo. It's a, it's a building here of worship. And, and that is a, a very interesting thing in itself to look up, to look, to look at. Look how it begins in, in, in chapter 8. They begin saying this, holy, holy, holy. And then verse 9, it says, when the living creatures give glory and honor. So in other words, referring back to verse 8. And he's telling us when they begin to say this, but he doesn't say say this. It says, when they living creatures are they begin to give their glory and honor and thanks 
to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever, that triggers something else. It triggers the 24 elders here who will fall down in worship. And so the scene here is toward the throne, the th- very throne, and it is God that is being worshipped. It is God that is being honored. He is the one being glorified. The scene in heaven culminates then in worship. God, all glorious, is worthy of such worship. It reminds us of the Exodus chapter 15, verse 11, which says, Who is like thee among the gods, O Lord? Here you have the heaven, you have all of heaven, beginning here in verse 4, or chapter 4, worshiping God. And it's very interesting because this crescendo effect begins with four living creatures, verse 8. In verse 10, 24 elders are added to it, and then we have others added to it in chapter 5. And so we see this uh, this recognition and this praising of God. Who is like thee, O God, is, is the, the verse that we looked at in the Old Testament. But First Chronicles 17.20 gives us the answer. O Lord, there is none like thee, neither is there any God beside thee. All the worship of the universe goes directly to God because there is no need to reserve or save any worship for any other individual. Psalm 86, verse 8. There is no one like thee among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like your works. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before thee, O Lord, and they shall glorify thy name. You are great and have done wonderful deeds. You are God and God alone. There is no one else. That's what First Chronicles 17.20 gives us. Listen to Psalm 89, verse 6. For who in the skies is comparable to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty is like the Lord? A God greatly feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all those who are around him. O Lord God of hosts, who is like Almighty God? And the answer is no one. The absolute, unique, and only God is alone worthy of our worship and praise. And this is why we're commanded uh, throughout the New Testament to, to worship Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, strength, leaving nothing for anyone else. We are to use up all of our being to worship Him. And we begin to see this in heaven. John, I can't imagine what John's thinking. Uh, if, if he were to it, just to talk to us about what it was like standing before the very throne. Well, we're going to find out what it's like when we get there. But we're getting a sense of what it's like right now as you read this, as you hear this, as you observe this, what these living creatures are doing here and how John is participating in this. So the first thing I want you to notice is they begin to talk about the holiness of God. That's the very first thing. And that's found in verse 8. He says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. Well, holy, holy, holy. It focuses on worship. This is just a a way of telling us that this is the beginning. This is only the character of God or the attributes of God, the nature of God. The first thing that causes them to worship is God's holiness. You remember this, we we see this in Isaiah chapter 6. You remember from 1 Samuel 22, uh, uh, Hannah's worship in 1 Samuel 2, 2, I mean. 
there were angels who were saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. You heard them saying the same thing. They were saying it in Isaiah's day, John's day. Why? Because it is the very truth about who God is. Now, what does it mean? Holy, holy, holy. Well, first of all, it's the only attribute of God ever repeated three times. The Bible never says God is love, 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 or God has mercy, 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 or grace, grace, grace. Uh, there is just no no way. So it's repeated three times, and I believe it's the summation of all that God is. It is the most one of the the most uh, salient attributes of God. God's holy in His utter and complete separation from evil in any form, and that makes him different than anything else we could possibly even imagine. <coughs> so, I suppose it would be uh, uh, right to say there is not one aspect of God more holy than any other aspect of God. As Exodus 15.11 says that we were said a while ago, He is majestic in holiness. Uh, Habakkuk, you can't help but think about Habakkuk. When Habakkuk called on God and and God uh, to, to do something. And God told him, I am doing something. Look around you. I'm going to use the Babylonians to take you all captive. And Habakkuk said, God, your eyes are too pure to behold evil. You can't look upon this evil nation. You're, you're, too, you're too holy for that. So having said that, God is more holy. God is, but God does what he pleases whenever he wants to do this. So Psalm 47 8 talks about this. God sits on His holy throne. And I think all of this is is being crescendoed for us in heaven and being displayed for us in heaven as the Scriptures have so vividly pointed out. Time does not permit me to mention all of the verses that talk about the holiness or the, the righteousness of God. Uh, Psalm 27.4. Listen to just one of these verses. Holiness is the beauty of the Lord. It is the shining of His glory and His majesty. It is who He is, holy and awesome. That's just one verse. Listen to Psalm 111, verse 9. Holy is His name. Uh, th that pretty much would sum it up. But this scene, the worship of His holiness, takes on a very direct purpose and perspective because here is what they are exalting when they are praising and adoring Christ. Listen, they're talking about His holiness, and it is exhibited in judgment. You see, they're taking part in judgment, and at the very execution of this, at the very onset of this, it's being exhibited. What is being exhibited? His holiness. Holiness has a fearfulness in it. Holiness, frankly, is furious with sin. God is a holy God is not only unable to be touched by sin, but he resents it with every ounce of his being. God rejects sin. Not only is he not tainted by it, but is repul it repulses him. He can't even look at it, so he must destroy it. And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing a righteous reaction of God against this that is on earth. Remember that this judgment is coming down to earth. Listen to what Psalm 89.7 says. God is greatly to be feared. And we, we saw that in Job. We've seen that in so many other places. Even Isaiah. As Isaiah saw the holiness of God. And so when we get into this, we look at this holiness that he's talking about. But I want you to notice the second part of verse 8. And what these four living creatures, these four cherubim 
angels say. They not only say and talk about His holiness, but look at what it says next. The Lord God, the Almighty. And what they're talking about here is uh, added on to the holiness of God is God's power. So not only is God holy, there is a power about Him. In fact, they use the the phrase that we're very familiar with, some of us, it's been written about in songs, it's called El Shaddai. And El Shaddai means God's power, or and it can be properly translated, the Lord, or the, the Almighty One, or the Strong One. And so that is the word that is used there. And looking at this, to sum up God's power as the Almighty One or the Strong One, we could simply say, or put it this way, that God can, and I love this, I think I got this from Steve, Dr. Steve Lawson. That God can do whatever He wishes, whenever He wishes, wherever He wishes, and to whomever He wishes to do it. That's who God is. And that's what I think these cherubim are reflecting to us and giving to John and demonstrating before John that he can do what, I, I think John MacArthur puts it this way, he can do whatever is doable. He can do whatever uh, he wants to do. He can do whatever he wills to do. There isn't anything that is doable that he can't do. There isn't anything that he wills to do that he can't do. And uh, that is another way of doing it. But I know that Dr. Lawson also says this, God is large and in charge, and he does whatever he wishes. And I wish time had was permitted because I had one Bible study where I went through and just talked about all the verses that deal with the sovereign God. Like I just started out with this message today, Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. God can do whatever he wants to do. In fact, it's the interesting thing about sovereignty today is that most people don't understand sovereignty and they would say they agree with it. But the more you define sovereignty, the more people don't agree with it. And so you find here that these four living creatures are dealing with not only the holiness of God, but they're dealing with the power of God. There are so many verses, again, to talk about this. Psalm 115.3 says, But our God who is in the heaven, He does whatever He pleases. Well, that means that the, the power of God and the holiness of God can do that. Listen to what Daniel 4.35 says. He does according to His will and the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. He can do whatever He wants to do and whatever is doable, whatever He wills to do, He can do. So God can do this. Isaiah 46.10, again mentioning this, My purpose will be established. I will accomplish my good pleasure. This is the God that is sitting there on that throne receiving this worship from these four living cherubim. And then in verse 9, when they start to do this, look at what happens in verse 10. The 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and will cast their crowns. So this triggers something in heaven. Uh, it triggers what happens in verse 9. It triggers the, the elders that will fall down before him and begin to worship him. Well, th that's interesting because when we look at this, we have to understand who these living creatures are. In verse 9 is telling us the four living creatures start this in other words, when the angels start their worship, which is identified here as glory, honor, and thanks, they are directing this to God, who again is him who lives forever and ever. 
and then you have the 24 elders will fall down, will worship. Now notice something. Notice what it says here, that when they start this, and they begin to praise him, look at what it says in verse 10. The 24 elders will fall down. That's future tense. Will worship. Will cast their crowns. This is a vision of the future. He is saying what will happen before it happens. This is why I started out with Isaiah chapter 46 verse 10. He can declare the end at the beginning. So here he is saying and telling John this 2,000 years ago and it still hasn't happened. This is a vision of the future. He is seeing what will take place before it happens. The miracle of this vision transports John to an unrealized future and he sees what hasn't happened but will happen. I don't, I don't know if, if I can even emphasize that, but the 24 elders, remember now, when the four living creatures, the cherubim, start this, the 24 elders, whom we said, represent the rapture-crowned church. This is what they do. They will fall down before him who sits on the throne. And so we are looking at ourselves in heaven and what is going to be triggered in our beings to fall down and to worship God and to cast the crowns that have been given to us right back at his feet. Because it will be at that time that we understand. It is, it is it's just an amazing thing. And how do they identify God? How does the church identify God? Is he who lives forever and ever. And, and the eternal God, the sovereign, glorious, majestic, holy God. So what does it mean? Well, why do they do this? The church has no preoccupation with who they are or anything other than the fact that they are there and their own honor and their own glory. Anything about them, which they would have none, they're only there to worship Christ because they realize that they have only received what they have received. They're only where they have are, are, are at because of what has been involved in the redemption of man. They have received gold and silver and precious stones as, 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 the, uh, as the judgments of or the recognition of them have been the Bema Seat of Christ. I almost forgot what, the, what that was. But they have been receiving the crowns and they realize that the worship is all directed to Christ because there is nothing. I'll never forget... Uh, being with Campus Crusade with Christ for a short period of time, not as a member, but just working with them and helping them, is we would say this, that we have nothing, nothing that we can boast on before God. Absolutely nothing. And so here we see a voluntary surrender of their crowns. Here's a voluntary act of worship that's being triggered by the angels to fall down into worship before the God who sits on the throne. And so, by the way, this is a look at, at this. When you, when you look at this, you see the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever. Look at what it says in verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you did create all things. And because... Of your will they existed and were created. 
there is a personal pronoun there that could support very easily the idea that these 24 elders are the actual church. The intimate, first personal, personal pronoun. Uh, the focus of this worship is on God's glory manifested in creation and the redemption of man. And by the way, verse 11 is a, uh, uh, an answer to evolution. You did create all things. They didn't evolve. Verse 11 answers evolution. God did actually create all things. And because they your, because of your will, God, they existed and were created. God is the creator. All of heaven knows and all of earth should know and will know that God has created all things. So he is identified again in chapter 10 of Revelation, verse 6, as the one who created heaven and everything in it. So here we have, once again, we have this, uh, we have this picture of worship in heaven that is going to be very real. The minute you understand this and see this, and you, perhaps some of you uh, have never seen this, but let me tell you something. This is where our future is. This is where we're going to be. This is what is involving us. When we see the 20, everywhere you see the 24 elders, this is the picture of the church. We are the church of this time. We are the church that has been uh, saved, and then at that time we will be the church that has been raptured. We will be the church that is raptured, the church crowned, the church saved, and we will be there to worship our Lord and Savior. I hope you are getting something out of this book of Revelation. I hope you'll stay with us, continue from week to week on this. Next week, we begin looking at really the preamble to the judgment itself. We'll look at chapter 5 of the book of Revelation, and it is going to be amazing. Stay with us, and thank you for again today for joining us on Hope for the Heart.